0: We are preaching our way through the Gospel of Luke in a sermon series called Reading the Red. It's, talked about, uh, it's talking about the words of Jesus. I don't know how many of you got one of these this morning. This is upside down. We apologize for that. But actually, we're, we're developing a special ministry to the, vis- the, to the vertically dyslexic. And uh, <clears throat> so if you got one of these, you probably just got the wrong bulletin. Um, John was taking off on that saxophone solo and I, it reminded me of a, I'm just in one of those moods this morning, you know how that is? It reminded me of a cartoon I saw this week. There were two, there was a couple being married and this guy dressed up in a tuxedo holding a saxophone and uh, the, the preacher was looking at him and saying, yeah, you can play your, your solo but you've got to wait till after the ceremony because we have a very strong policy in this church against premarital sax." Oh, sure. Turn on me. Right off before I even start. Go ahead. I can take it. (laughs) Uh. So Jesus is going along with this huge multitude of people. This is in one of the primes of his ministry. And he has just told a parable... That lists several excuses why, when the time comes for him to call people near to him, they will not come. And he looks over this multitude and he guesses that there is a goodly percentage of those people who are just there because it's a going thing. That's one of the dangers of having a large number of anything, is that people don't recognize the cost involved. That's one of the wonderful things about having a small church is that you realize the cost involved. There is no anonymity. Now, it's not bad to slip in and slip out for a while with anonymity and letting, let God develop you at his own pace. But, but in a smaller movement, you know if you don't do it, it won't get done. But in a large movement, you can guess that there are any number of people who have misunderstood Um, and have shown up because they thought there was some sort of party or some sort of benefit to be gained. And so that's what he's looking at. And he decides to tell them in no uncertain terms what the demands of being his disciple are. And the demands have to do with not making excuses. The demands all have to do with looking at the legitimate reasons in your life why... You would not or could not follow him and then disregarding them. Following him anyhow because he is a larger priority in your life than they are. Let me just begin to say to you that in every group of Scripture, in every context of Scripture, there is usually one or two germinal verses. And verse 27 is really the germinal verse. It says that you must carry your own cross. Now, that is, those are very important words because this is a message about personal responsibility. This is a message about not blaming anyone else. This is a message about not asking anyone else when it comes time for you to face Christ not asking anyone else to do it for you. You must carry your own cross. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Even legitimate reasons for for avoiding concentrating on God are not good excuses. Let me say that again. Even legitimate reasons, You can have a legitimate reason for not being able to concentrate and follow God fully. But that does not make it a legitimate excuse. You see, in our mentality, there is a line, and it's a very, very fluid line. And sometimes it's almost crossed imperceptibly. That is to say, it's tough to see when you've crossed it. There. There is something in us that wants to know why we are dysfunctional in a certain area. But after we've dug and dug and dug until we've discovered a good part of that, we have switched it to this is why I hurt so bad or this is why I am like I am to therefore I can't go on. Therefore I can't make progress. Therefore I will always be like this. I will always be crippled or dysfunctional in a certain area because this is why I am. No, no, no. Once you cross that line, it ceases to become a reason and starts to become an excuse. It ceases to become an explanation of who you are and begins to become a predictor of who you will always be. And that becomes the crippling force in your life. What is what you needed... That is, some understanding of who you are becomes a prison because you have misplaced its value. You have made it larger than it is. And what Jesus is saying in this passage is all of us have things that would crucify us if we crawled upon them. And they will always be with you. But you don't stop at one place and plant them and crawl up on them and say, this is who I am. You take them up with you and carry them along. There will always be things that hurt. There will always be things that you never can quite resolve in your life, but they are not a continual excuse for not being healed and empowered by Christ. Let's take a look at some of those. <clears throat> the first one I will spend the longest on because this is the one that I really um, see happening in most people. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, <clears throat> that stops a lot of non-believers right there saying, Whoa, well, I'm not going to qualify for that. I don't even want to qualify for that. There are two things you have to understand here. First of all, you have to to understand that in much Semitic communication, much Semitic communication is hyperbolic. That is, it uses hyperbole. It is exaggerated in order to make a point. I had a buddy in, in college who was Jewish, and he'd call his mom and something would dissatisfy his mom and his mom would go, Oh sure, why don't you just run over with a car? Go ahead, cut off my legs. It'd be less painful, you know. And she was just trying to communicate the fact that she didn't really want him to run over with a car. She was just trying to say, hey, that hurts. You know, we disagree. But she she'd use that hyperbolic language. Jesus does it over and over in this in the in the uh um, gospels. He's saying if your right eye offends you, pluck it out. Well, if you think about that for a while, now, now, wait a minute, how can your right eye offend you and your left eye not offend you? I mean, unless you're like, remember that actor that had those two, you know, unless you got one of those, how can that be? See, because if you're, if you're, I mean, if you go along like this, I don't want to lose both eyes, you know, um, see, it's, it's, what it's saying is you are without any hesitation for your own pain to rid yourself of those things that would destroy you. Now, that makes sense, doesn't it? But in Semitic language, in, in the way that people communicate, then it, pardon me, is, it is put into language that makes us think in terms of in, in English. It doesn't make much sense to us in English. A much better translation of that verse, a much more accurate translation of that verse in, uh, is in Matthew ten thirty seven. <clears throat> it says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. <clears throat> There's an Aramaic axiom that uses the word hate for less than. It's a proportionate thing. <clears throat> now let's talk about this for a while. What's he saying here? What he's saying is that unless you have a love, now listen to this, that transcends the people you care for. It will not be worthy of him, neither will it benefit the people you care for. This verse virtually banishes parasitism. Being a parasite on another person's life, it does not benefit a person to make them your world. It does not, they can't answer all your needs. It does not benefit a person to have the pressure, the smothering, awful responsibility for your happiness. That does not benefit people. That you might think that's a great tribute to them, but it's not. You are not free enough to love another person in a healthy way unless you have a love that cares more for something else than you care for them. Otherwise, your existence is dependent upon them, and no one should have that responsibility. God is saying, unless you care for me, unless you can elevate your love, you're going to crush and smother those whom you do love. There's a line from a poem by Lovelace that I just absolutely admire. It says this, I could not love thee dear so much, Loved I, not honor more. And what it means, among the things it means, is this. That once you decide that the reason that you will stay true to someone is not just that they meet your pleasure needs or your emotional needs. It's not that every day they prove that they are good enough for you. But there is actually another reason. You would not be untrue to them because you are true to a principle of monogamy you are true to a principle of fidelity that's the character you are developing in yourself and unless or uh, uh, even if they become displeasurable in your eyes you will still be able to love them you will still be able to care for them because there is honor in your life and that's what you've devoted yourself to do you know what that does you know the kind of pressure that takes off a person to every day be absolutely the best person they can be because what if he doesn't love me anymore? There are a lot of people out there in competition for him. There are a lot of people out there in competition for her. And they are prettier and they are handsomer and they are—they—they don't have the burdens that we have together. They won't have the past scars we have together. All of the pressure is on me. Not if the person loving you has a higher calling than you. There's a solidness there. There's a safety. There's a security there. And Jesus is saying, unless you can think, unless you can have a transcendent love that is more important to you than how a person performs, that you can draw from along with another person, then that person is in danger, and so are you. You know, Romeo and Juliet is a terribly romantic play, and I mean both of those words. I used to know a guy in college that would take um, every girl he met to see Romeo and Juliet when, when it was in town, you know? And he had this horrible line, you know, it was like, it was like, uh, you know, she, uh, you know, would think he was dead and so she killed herself and, and then he woke up and, you know, or however happened and he killed himself and who went first? Did he, did she think he was dead? She thought he was dead and killed herself and then he woke up and saw her and then killed himself. And they'd walk out of the movie and this guy put his arm around his girl and said, you know, that's how I feel about you. You know? <laughs> Yeah, But this is our first date. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Isn't that strange? You know, isn't that wonderful? Oh, you know. Gag, oh, mag. But there is something that's not terribly healthy, or that is terribly unhealthy, about those feelings. I remember my mom had a good friend, um, who was dying of cancer. And I remember her looking over to my dad one time and said, if Fred dies, I die. And I thought, well, maybe that is a hyperbolic expression of how she feels. If so, I understand that. But if that is literally true, then there's something wrong with that relationship. There's something wrong with that relationship. There ought to be more to her life than this friend. There is a place for putting people in a category where you are free to love them and you have enough healthy detachment from them that your very existence is not dependent upon whether or not they are pleased with you or you're pleased with them. And that's what God is saying. And the other thing that he's saying is that as people heap pain on you as you have lived through pain with other people, as you have been disappointed with other people. You cannot let that determine your theology or how much you are cared for or what you think of yourself. I talked with a gal this week who I admire. She's making tremendous progress in her life. One of the things she said was that she came from a family Where the parents innocently remarked, we got too many kids. This is too many kids for anybody to have. She was the last kid born. How would that make you feel? Wow, I'm a burden, you know. I shouldn't be here. I'm my parents' problem, see. All of us, at one time or another in our life, have been dumped on like that, unintentionally. Other people are are blowing off steam. And so there's a deposit made in our heart and on our brain. There's a tape that has been made. And it causes a lot of discouragement. And one of the reasons that we find it difficult to love, one of the reasons we find it difficult to express our love is because the tape keeps going off and there is a there's an awful stoppage in the process of intimacy because we love them and we wanted their approval more than anybody's. And until we transfer our thirst for approval to someone higher than they are, we will never quite be able to forgive them. Nor will we ever quite be able to feel okay about ourselves. Now, that's a terrible burden for anybody to carry, even those people who had a lot of problems of their own and probably made those those statements out of callousness, ignorance. They were probably doing the very best they knew how. But until you relieve them of the responsibility for making you okay, you'll never be able to deal with them or with future intimacy. And they will cease to be the reason you are like you are and start to become the excuse for you being always like you are. And that is what God does not want. And that is what Jesus was calling people from. You have to learn to love God, to follow God, no matter what. Because that will leave you free to love and free to forgive. Can't you see Joseph... Let me, let me do this. This is awful, but let me do it. Can't you see Joseph, if he only had the perspective, only had the perspective of humans, years later... He hasn't seen God's perspective on the whole thing. He hasn't been able to look at his brothers and say, I know you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Years later, here he is in a therapy group, group therapy. Well, you know, when I I was little, my my brothers really hated me and stuff because I had this really neat coat. My my dad really gave me a really neat coat, and he really hated it, and all I did was tell him a dream about how how they were all going to bow down to me, and they and then just threw me in a hole, and I've I've always been terribly psychologically scarred because of that. And then, and then when I went to Egypt, uh, I, went, I went to work for this one guy, and I really tried to do a good job, and 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 his and his wife just like ripped my clothes off and stuff, and and like like I've been really sexually repressed since that time. And then and then and then I went into prison, and I and I told a guy to, to to remember me to the pharaoh when he got out and he didn't and he didn't even remember me and stuff and and then the Pharaoh said would you come and interpret my dreams and I just said no I'm sick of it I'm not going to I mean can you imagine that but that's what happens you know now a good group would nail that guy on all those points you realize that a good group would say time out here Jack you know let's talk about you for a minute but Joseph was a guy in a forty-fifth chapter of Genesis who said, who looked at his brothers and says, "I am Joseph. Come closer to me." The last memory he has of his brothers is them throwing him into a pit, selling him to the Midianites, and years later he's saying, "I'm your brother. Come closer to me. Do not be." Angry with yourselves. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. You see the perspective, you see the strength. He had every reason in the world to be angry and to be emotionally crippled, but he wasn't. Because he didn't make the reason the excuse. And then the second thing, he says, he goes into the thing about the tower and the army and so on and so forth. And and basically what he's doing is banishing perfectionism. Perfectionism. Do you know what it is when somebody looks at you and says, in the future, don't make this mistake? What are they actually saying to you? I'm counting on you to work with me in the future. That is to say, everything you've done so far is forgiven. When he looked at the woman caught in adultery, he looked at her and simply said, go and sin no more. In other words, you are forgiven. You have been accepted, you have seen my love and you have benefited from my love. And I'm just counting on you for the future now. When a kid is standing there and you've caught him, you know, he's crawled up and his tooth got stuck on a cookie in the cookie jar. I mean, you don't know how it happened, but he was just looking at this kind of smelling and his tooth got caught. See? And you just look at him and you say, don't do that anymore. What's he do? Okay, I won't. I swear. See? And what you're saying is, I know. My tooth has been there too. Go on from here. When Jesus says, you have to be willing to estimate what it's going to cost to follow me and pre-sign up so that you don't look stupid What it does is conjure up in us all of the places we've been embarrassed because of our own mistakes in the past. And I've got a heap of them. I mean, I've got a heap of them. I look at some of them. I turn over some of the memories. You know, just from time to time, they come back to you unsolicited. You know? And I think, how could I have said that? How could I have done that? How could I have been that? And quite frankly, I'm intimidated by my own mistakes. I've got a good deal of perfectionistic tendencies in my life. I'm I'm pretty obsessed with a lot of things. And it's difficult for me to release myself from those things. Difficult. However, Jesus is saying, no matter how many monuments you have to your own idiocy... Don't do it again. A mistake is nothing but a painful lesson. How many of you, people have you had come into you and say, why did this happen? Why did I do this? How did I get in this mess? Well, the answer to that is, so it won't happen again. So you won't do it again so that you'll never be in this mess again. That's the answer. A mistake is a lesson. There's a, there's a place, I think it's in Indiana that you drive along the road, and here in the middle of nowhere, and, and and Indiana has a lot of nowhere, and in the middle of nowhere is a half-built shopping center. Now, you, there are probably some in Florida, too. I don't get out much in Florida, but I mean, this place has three walls, you know, the concrete with the steel things coming, steel rods coming out the end here, all rusted, and so on and so forth, and it's got this old sign, Camelot Shopping Center, and And I have driven past this place for years. It always surprises me because I never think of it when I'm driving by. And I look at this thing and here's this camera and and the signs all, you know, curling up by now and all this kind of stuff. And it just looks like somebody got out there, got halfway done with the job, said, gosh, this is in the middle of nowhere. I probably shouldn't do this, you know, and just walked off. And there it is, a monument to somebody's mistake. And every time I walk past that thing, I keep thinking, You know, I hope that that wasn't the last time they tried to build anything. I hope that wasn't, they didn't get so embarrassed with that that they would never, ever try to build anything again in their life. Jesus is saying, come on and build some more. You know? But think. Think what it's going to cost. It's very, very important that you don't Think you have to be perfect. It's very, very important that you forgive yourself for past mistakes. But it's equally important that you don't keep making those same mistakes over and over again. Because your past mistakes, if they are a pattern, are an excuse for future mistakes. Well, that's how I am, you know? That's just how I am. I was supposed to have some cards made for this morning's messages. And I am, I just, I am. I do not think in details. And so I didn't. I just forgot them and came here and confessed to the worship committee. I'm sorry, I didn't get the cards made. But you know what? That's going to creep up on me someday and shoot me in the foot. And it certainly isn't going to do the Lord any good. I mean, when I tell somebody I'm going to do something and then I forget because, oh, golly, I just don't have a head for details. What does that make the God who I represent look like? I can't excuse future behavior from past patterns. And neither can you. We can't do that. Jesus demands more than that. Thirdly, there is the passage about salt. It says, therefore, salt is good. But even if salt has become tasteless, what will it, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. Is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. There is a tendency... For all of us to become lazy over a period of time, somebody once asked what was was asked what was his main interest in building up his field of endeavor, and he replied with this answer, "I love this answer intercepting entropy entropy for those of you who are not familiar with the term is basically refers to the second law of thermodynamics that says everything is slowly unwinding and becoming more and more chaotic and more and more um, at loose ends. Any of you who have children understand the word very, very well. You can clean the house and then it goes into entropy. Well, as we become Christians, phew, I hate that term, as we begin to follow Christ and love Christ and listen to Christ, as we develop a personal relationship with God, when we first feel that warmth and that love and that affirmation, we are so much on fire. But put somebody in a church for a few years, good grief is like dousing them with a hose. It's like they substitute activity for devotion. They substitute words for love and action. They learn Christianese. There's hardly anybody rottener I know than a a seasoned minister who's who's learned to work the system of ministry. And I saw that happening in my own life. I still see the temptation in my own life. In my my first parish, there were a lot of older people, and I loved them, and they loved us. They squeezed our cheek a lot. You're so cute. You're just like my grandson. But every time you try to get something going, boy, I was, I was, boy, full of zeal. I mean, here's, here's a town that I see people walking around like this. They're all trying to make it in the world. They're all getting crushed and they can hear about God's love and they can have Christ in their life. And they can be personally loved by the God of the universe and built up by him and healed and emboldened and built and so on and so forth. And here's this congregation going. Well, how would you like to do this? We tried that back in 30. It didn't work then. Well, why don't we do this? Well, I probably could have done that when I was 60, but I can't now. Well, how, I'll tell you what. Maybe we can do And i tell you, every parade got rained on. And their famous line was, honey. <laughs> you know, it was either reverend or Honey. Honey, I know you mean well. But I've put in my time. And it's time for somebody else to do it. Entropy. There comes a time in all of our lives when we get burned out. But you know why? Because we haven't been obedient to God about the rest periods that he gave to us in the first place. We haven't minded the systematic cycling of rest and restoration that he has for us. And so we get burned out. And that burnout applies to everything. He's hurt me for years, and I'm fed up, and I'm not taking it anymore. I've been ignored for years, and I'm fed up, and I'm not taking it anymore. See? And so the salt that was once so potent that preserved and seasoned begins to lose its saltness. And the fervor for Christ and the passion for Him begins to become lukewarm. And because there is much iniquity in the world, and because we see it, and because we pattern ourselves after it, because we are people... That naturally imitate. I was jogging the other day, running down this one street, and here was a little kid with a plastic lawnmower. Mother, no place around. The kid couldn't have been four years old. And I was, I had a long shot at this, at this street. I mean, it was probably half a mile long. It wound around lakes and so on and so forth. And here he is going up and down the thing, sweating like a, you know, banshee. Just going up and down the thing. Pain look on his face. Nobody there to watch. Wasn't mowing the grass. Just going up and down. Why? Because he's seen his dad do it. There was no particular benefit. There was nobody admiring him. There was no payoff. He'd seen his dad do it, so he did it. Well, when we see things like this in the world, and somebody stands up, like like the old movie Network. I'm mad as... And I'm not going to take it anymore. We start imitating that, don't we? Yeah. I'm not going to take it. I don't have to take this anymore. i got my rights. I'm mad and I'm not going to do it anymore. And I'm burned out. We we love that phrase. I'm just burned out. I'm not going to do it anymore. Watch out. Watch out. Because you, you're just beginning to lose your saltness. And the pile that you're going to find yourself in is not going to be a pleasant one. Jesus is saying, you got to keep the season. Take the rest. You need to take the counsel. You need to be invigorated by somebody, but never, ever, 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 ever give up. Never. Would you pray with me? And before we pray, let me ask you this. There's a little space on the bottom of your, on the bottom of your uh, bulletin. Or if you got one of the, for the vertically dyslexic, it's on the top. If you have a writing utensil, if you would put in that space These two phrases, and if you don't, please remember them. I will give up using this excuse, and then put a blank. I will give up using this excuse. That refers to your mistakes. Can you imagine what it felt like to Saul, before he became Paul, What it felt like to the Pharisee Saul, who had persecuted Christians for years and had seen all kinds of wimpy Christians, I'm sure, and felt very justified in defending the law. He was defending the Torah. To meet Jesus out on a road and the voice say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And the voice came back and said, this is Jesus? Can you imagine what he felt like? No, not you. I've already been against you for years. No, let it be anybody else. But not you. Because now he needed to turn around his mistakes that he'd made. Well, you've made some mistakes. And maybe it's hard for you to admit I was wrong. Maybe it's hard for you to admit that they don't matter enough to cripple you for the rest of your life. But maybe you can. And if you can, fill in the blank. I'm not going to use this excuse anymore. I'm not going to use this excuse anymore. I am not going to look back over my life And become painfully aware of this particular thing I did wrong. And therefore be afraid to do anything else that's right. I'm not going to do it anymore. I am going to get that out of my road of following God personally. And I'm going to go on from here. I'm going to let him forgive me. Through the forgiveness that's available through Christ. I just haven't availed myself of it. And even though it will always hurt, and even though I will always be embarrassed, and even though I will always wish I hadn't done it, I am not going to make that my reason for not living fully from now on. Then put a second line with this. I am going to stop blaming fill in the blank. Fill in the blank. I'm going to stop blaming... And you have to do it right now. Just when you get home in your alone time, when you're having your devotions, your quiet time this week with the Lord. Or you might have to put blank, 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 and blank. I don't know. But there's somebody in your life or could be somebody in your life that is a major factor and turns your attention away from following God because all you can think about is this person, what this person's done for you, and they're to blame for your life situation. Well, they might have been up till now, but they're not from now on. From now on, only you are responsible for your life. If you need help, get it. Most of us do. Most of us cannot get through life without counseling and objectivity and some sort of support system Most of us can't. That's why we're here. That's what we need. That's why we were made like we are. But the individual, in the end, when it comes down to the bottom line, has to take responsibility and say, My life is my responsibility. It's nobody else's. It's not the person who hurt me. It's not when I hurt myself. It's not when I hurt other people. It's not when I did this. It's not when I did that. It's my responsibility from now on. I cannot let that stand in my way of following God fully. I cannot let the pride that would hurt by saying I made a mistake or I thought my philosophy was right stand in my way of coming back to God. I cannot let the pain that I've had from being shoved away or discounted or, or generally dumped on. Keep coming back every time I, I feel like there's hope. I don't want that, and God doesn't want it for me. So you fill in those two blanks this week and date it. And if you have trouble with that, you come see me or come see an elder and we'll support you and we'll pray you through it. All right? Pray with me now. Lord, most of us are a mess with real good coverings. Most of us would rather be mad than make progress because it feels better and it's a lot less work. Most of us would rather be ashamed than take another risk to be ashamed again. Most of us would just like to say, we've tried hard enough. We've tried long enough. And frankly, we haven't got any energy left. Because that's how we feel. That's not the fact. That's not the fact of faith. That's just how we feel. Give us the faith that transcends people. Give us the faith to put in you that will allow us to risk again and again and again and again without being destroyed because you are our provider. Give us the faith that says, No. Matter how you feel, I have a plan for your life. And if you will walk with me, what I have begun, I will finish. And no matter how funny it sounds, no matter how old you feel, I've just begun with you. Jesus. You've walked where we've walked. You've been tempted to give up. You've been rejected. You are the face of God that understands because you've lived like we've lived. Help us now. Come alive in our lives and let us walk with you following You. In Your Spirit, we pray. Amen.